That same day, two of them were going to a vicinity called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. Chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. For we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day that since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but did not find his body. They came and told us what they had seen, that they had seen a vision of the angels, who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But uh, him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not Christ have to suffer these things to enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. This is the word of the Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. 
Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're continuing with our series uh, on prayer, our summer school of prayer, uh, focusing this year on the prayers of Jesus, and in particular, the character of those prayers. So today we come to uh, Jesus' commitment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these two uh, glorious passages, um, uh, wonderful words from the lips of your Son, explaining to us um, the, uh, the shape and the depth and the power of his calling, and indicating to us um, the depth of his commitment to you here on the cross. We ask, Lord, that you would open our ears to your word morning and open our hearts that we too might be able to follow in his Now is the time for judgment on this world. I have to say uh, judgment is very much in the air over our household at the moment because this is the season of GCSE exam results. Now is the time of judgment. Exams are a test, a judgment of everything that we have experienced and practiced and learnt in the subjects covered. I remember my first set of public exams at university. They were called Literae Humaniores Moderation, a phrase designed to strike terror into the heart of any young, aspiring classicist. Mods, notorious exams, thought to be the longest in the Western world, only uh, exceeded in length by the Chinese exams of the English diplomatic corps. As I sat down from my first paper, pen in hand, it occurred to me that if I wrote continuously everything that I have learnt over the five previous terms, I would probably only be halfway through when I finished the length of time set for the exams before me. Exams are the invented crises in which we discover what we've learned. But crises come along unexpectedly at every point and in every part of our lives. those moments of crisis, we discover what we have learned. It's true of our appointment to our biggest job and the biggest uh, crisis that hits us in that job. It's true of the major decisions and uh, crisis moments which test our character and our relationships. And it's also true of our discipleship. Peter was pretty confident with his discipleship. I don't know about these guys, Jesus, 
but I'm ready to die for you. But when the moment of crisis came, he wanted it to be with a sword in his hand. And he couldn't hack it when it was defenseless in a courtyard under the sneering eyes of Roman soldiers and before the um, mouthy cross-examination of a serving man. Peter's discipleship was at heart, in essence, fundamentally a relationship between him and his Lord Jesus, his Master. And through Jesus, with his Heavenly Father, with God. So that means that discipleship is distilled, is quintessentially found in prayer. What we are in prayer is what we are as disciples. So Jesus advised Peter at that moment to use the short time left to him to dig into prayer, to prepare himself in prayer for the moment of crisis that was coming. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. In the moment of crisis, the ability to get the big decision right is built out of an endless series of tiny moments of getting the decision right. Praying a right in the many small moments of life, good and bad, prepare us to be able to pray aright in moments of terror and disaster. Or to put it the other way around, the character that's revealed in those crisis moments is the same character which has been built up step by step over all the preceding moments of our lives. Well, a crisis of Jesus' life clearly was his And it's clear that his crisis didn't catch him unawares. On a number of occasions before then, he had predicted to his disciples that this was coming his way. He'd spoken with them um, on a number of occasions, and uh, in particular at the beginning of the week, of his final week, and on the night before his across the valley and seeing out of the great east gate of the temple platform a zigzag of torches winding down the hill across the valley. Soldiers coming across the valley to come to that garden to arrest him and take him away. At that moment he had the opportunity to run up the hill behind him through the olive trees, over the Mount of Olives, and into the wilderness of Judah beyond, and to hide and be lost from those soldiers' uh, grasp. But his nerves held, 
in calling his disciples awake and courage, he accepted the terror which he had chosen to receive from his father's hand. His nerves held because he had been praying. In that extended time of prayer, in which he waged an intense struggle over fear, we only hear of two phrases that he prayed, presumably because he prayed them with sufficient intensity and volume to carry across the still night to the disciples who were sitting a little further off under the trees. And presumably also because he prayed them again and again so that they lodged in those disciples' minds. Here are the two phrases. Going a little further, Jesus fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he went away a second time and prayed, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will The difference in phrasing demonstrates that Jesus has moved on in his attitude, in his, in his position, in his prayer. In the first prayer, it's still an open question whether there might be another way. And Jesus is begging that that other way would be revealed. Yet he is ready to hold on to his Father's will above his own fears By the time of the second prayer, it seems that he's worked through the equation again, and he has recognized that there probably is no other way to fulfill his Father's will. And so he prays, he prays a prayer of acceptance and of commitment to his Father's will. The character that we find, above all, in this crisis prayer of Jesus, is his utter commitment to his Father's purposes. Jesus is ready to offer his life, literally, so that his Father's will may be fulfilled in him. Now, Jesus has long recognized the shape of his Father's will. He's spoken of it a number of times. Right at the beginning, you remember when he was baptized in the River Jordan by John the Baptist, there's a voice from heaven that comes, the voice of God, speaks over him and says these amazing words, You are my beloved son. In you, I am well Amazing words to hear. But actually, those, that, that sentence, which seems to us just a, just a simple affirmation of the father's love for his son, turns out to be two different phrases taken from two different parts of the Old Testament. The first is taken from Psalm 2 and speaks about the Messiah, the coming anointed King of God. You are my beloved Son. You come in my power. The second phrase is taken from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 41, and speaks of the 
the suffering servant, the one who will suffer on behalf of men, so that God's righteous will may be done. In you, I am well. And no doubt Jesus took these two phrases, knowing where they came from, and chewed over at them and wrestled with them during his 40 days in the wilderness in prayer. Asking his father, asking himself what the significance of these two phrases was and how they fit together and how they changed each other. And what the impact and significance of those two phrases were for him and for his ministry. And how that would be worked out in him. And it seems that as he came from that time, he was already fairly clear what the shape of impact of that combination of phrases on on his father's lips would mean for him, the beloved son. He recognized that. But when he shared that with his disciples, Peter couldn't accept that recognition at all. This will never happen to you. Jesus has to reprimand Peter, whom he had just praised for recognizing him in him, the Messiah, the Son of God, and says to him, get behind me, Satan, get behind me, put behind me the temptation that you are raising in front of me to step aside from my Father's glory. So Jesus never ran from the calling which he recognized. And this was reflected in his prayer, as we see in our reading from John 12. Now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it's for this very reason that I came to this hour. So what will I say? Father, your name be glorified. not to have learned very much about this, the implications of their discipleship, or if they had it, it wasn't enough. Because when the moment of crisis came for them, they did not do what Jesus had called for them to do. Remember he says in our second reading, whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant must be. could not manage that tension. When the moment of crisis came, what did they do? They betrayed him. They denied him. They forsook him. And yet, Jesus in his love for them, and in the power of his risen um, appearance to them after his death, new life appearance to them in his encouragement to them and in the power of his spirit at Pentecost which he gave to them working inside them they were able to regroup his disciples in his forgiveness and in his power so that not many weeks later in a short space of time they were able to face derision, threats and beatings 
It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. He was able to articulate that reason to others. A little later in that same passage, he says, But I, when I am lifted up, I will draw everyone to myself. Speaking of his death. And after his death and in his resurrection appearance, he was able to explain to his disciples again, clearly, from Scripture, and even to upbraid them for not having understood that calling, that purpose, sufficiently clearly. How foolish you are, we heard in our first reading. How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? So the question for us is, do we understand our During the last couple of months, I spent a good while exploring the extraordinary, powerful, amazing, brilliant, challenging calling that we all share in the calling of the church, Christ's bride, Christ's army, Christ's people. And at the end of the summer, a new series, after the summer school on prayer, a new series on um, how that calling one of us in different ways. Do we fully understand, can we articulate to others the calling of Jesus upon us as disciples of Christ? Because if we can, if we know what our calling is, then we can hold fast to it when the moment for crisis come, when the storm Jesus practiced commitment in prayer. Jesus practiced commitment in prayer. Again and again, Jesus expressed his commitment to his Father's will. In his prayers, in his actions, in his words, in his explanations, in his predictions. A week before he died, as we heard in our second reading, Jesus prayed, Father, glorify your name. The night before he died, he prayed again, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Same prayer, repeated again. Practice and then repeated in the moment of Jesus had been working himself, practicing himself, preparing himself for this moment for three years beforehand. He had been running through scriptures in his mind, putting patterns of prayer in place, establishing um, commitment to his Father's will. So that when the moment came, he already had that liturgy. He already had those hymns, those songs. He had those psalms running through his mind, which he could use powerfully to keep him firm, to keep his nerve, to keep him committed 
serious fathers here. When we say together, Sunday by Sunday, up on the screen here, God is good. All the time. What we're doing is we're practicing. We're practicing just ordinary, everyday Sundays. You know, Sunday's when it's raining, Sunday's when it's sunshiny. Sunday's when it was really easy to get up and come in. Sunday's when it was a real struggle to get everybody out the door. Sunday's when there's a lovely Sunday lunch simmering on the stove. Sunday's when things have gone wrong. Sunday's when you've got a wedding coming next week. Sunday's when you've got a funeral coming next week. We're practicing through all of these, these sunshine and rain Sundays. Declaration of commitment to God's goodness, which can hold us when the crisis really comes, when the roof does not hold the water out, when the floods come. God is good all the time Charlie and Sarah demonstrated this last month of school. We can hold on to words that we have practiced to keep us going through the times that we never predicted would come to us in our discipleship. So practice commitment in prayer. I'm going to finish extraordinary prayer, written by John Wesley for the Methodist Church. It's a prayer that he encouraged each of his little um, groups, the little cells that met together all over the country, to pray together once a year, to remind themselves of the calling which they had received, to remind themselves of the commitment that they had made to their Lord and Savior Jesus, to remind them of the crisis moment which might come towards us. It's a powerful and dangerous prayer. Methodist Church explains it like this. God's gracious offer to us of his relationship with us is already out there. It's already on the table. It's already offered to us. But it is simultaneously challenged. If God is committed to us, are we prepared to accept that commitment and the reality of it and commit ourselves to him in return? And even if we do choose to accept it, how can we manage to live out that commitment adequately, frail and human as we are? Well, Wesley's idea was to pray this covenant prayer in the context of Holy Communion, as we did in the service because in communion, we remind ourselves again and again of the vast self-sacrifice and commitment of our Lord Jesus, his love for us, to whom we pray this prayer of commitment. So reminding ourselves of the love that we have received. And John Wesley's idea, also in this prayer, was that by praying the prayer, we were articulating again the shape of the calling to which we are called as Christians. So we are understanding the calling that we have received. 
And his idea with this prayer was to repeat it year after year so that we could grow in that calling, in the depth and grasp of our understanding of this commitment to Christ. And as we practice it, so when the times of crisis come, it's there already in our hearts. So I'm going to read it to you. It's going to be up on the screen behind me. And I invite you just to listen to these powerful words of commitment. And after that, I'm going to read it again. And if you feel that these are words that you can say, that you're ready to say, I invite you to say them in, in, your, in your head, not that way, in your heart. And maybe if you wish, you could stand as a sign of that commitment that you are making. But these are powerful and difficult words, so don't do it just lightly. Uh, John Wesley's plan was that there would be a whole series of sermons and explanations and worship and preaching and discussion around the implications of this before each group got to the point of saying it together. So don't just stand up because everybody else is standing. Stand if you commit in these words. I will be your God, says the Lord, and you shall be my people. Lord Jesus, I am no longer my own. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed by you or laid aside by you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours. The covenant now made on earth, let it be ratified. Jesus, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low.
Made on earth. 